For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Top 5, a show where we count things down from number 5 all the way to number 1. And this week, we're going to have to follow the clues. We're going to have to follow the, the dame walking down the street to find out what our number 1 movies are this week. Top 5 mystery movies. And i got to say, Rodrigo, this is a rather difficult category. And I think for most people, when you listen to my Top 5, it'll be like, yeah, Stephen's talked about those movies before. But, you know, if you're I've been doing this kind of weird search for like, hey, let's find some other mystery movies besides the five that I always watch again and again. And sure. I came up with ones that uh, what is it called? Broken Hearts or something uh, that I was talking about a couple of weeks ago on the Major Spoilers mm-hmm. podcast. And it's like technically it's listed as a mystery, but it's more of a farcical romp. Sure. And it's like, well, I really wouldn't consider that a mystery, but. Okay, and and if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, they list Citizen Kane as a mystery, and it's like, right. is it? Yeah. Is it really? And everything that I found, they're like, hey, great mystery movie, Get Out. And I'm like, I love Get Out. I don't feel like it's a mystery at all. Yeah. What are your thoughts, I'm, Rodrigo? I, you know, I, I, I think that a mystery movie is something where, like, the core of the movie is, like, answering some sort of question. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, who, like, that's why Citizen Kane fits, right? It's, like, it's a movie about, like, a guy tracking down all of this information about um, Kane. Right. Uh, so it's, like, I, I, I haven't seen Gone Girl, but presumably it's, like, where is Gone Girl, right? Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, it, technically it would be kind of a mystery, but it's also more of a thriller because, and sure. here's, and here's probably part of the reason why, um, my number five is so low on the list mm-hmm. because most of the movie in both gone girl and in my number five knives out is the person who thinks that they've committed the crime. We're following that person as she attempts to cover up the supposed crime that she has committed in knives out. Mm-hmm. Of course, then we have uh, Harlan Trombley. Uh, played by uh, Daniel Craig, just, you know, following the clues, trying to figure things out. But he knows from the very first moment, you know, who, you know, that uh, that our our main heroine is um, is somehow involved. And it's only when you finally figure out who done it and why that you're like, ah, OK, with Gone Girl, it's like, you know what happened to the girl and you're hoping that she can get out alive. Also, get out mm-hmm. tends to be, uh, as yeah. you said, Matthew, one of those those mystery movies. So my number five knives out. um and it's a very good movie. I, I, I really enjoy it a lot. It's um, the best foghorn leg, leghorn picture in history, as far as I'm concerned. Well, there you go. And, you know, I cannot wait to see the next two movies, but my number five is Knives Out. But I, I don't know, Rodrigo, what you have for your number five, if it falls into the, the Gone Girl category or not, or how many uh, um, uh, Ben Affleck uh, actors you have on your list. How many Ben Afflecks does yes, this movie have? Yes, how many Ben Afflecks does I, I this movie I believe it has none, but... Because uh, I think at this point, Affleck was really on top of things and would have commanded kind of a big check 
but my number five is Memento. Yeah. Mm. And it's my number five because I think the first time you watch Memento, it does feel like a mystery. Mainly what's going on, you know, what's what's the deal, what's happening. But once you've watched it all the way through and you start, you know, especially if you go back and watch it again and you start putting things in chronological order, it's like, actually, this is a very straightforward movie. And there kind of isn't a mystery here. Um, but it's a movie that completely relies on its structure, right? Right. Because it's uh, unreliable and because it shows you things out of order, it creates a mystery where there wouldn't necessarily be one or where the, the, the question that it poses would be answered immediately within the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, still a fun movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of those movies that really uh, created this symptom that in the 90s every and early 2000s, every movie had to have a twist. Yeah. Right. Um, so. And it also, it also launched uh, Christopher Nolan's career. It made him a big name. Yeah. And so we can thank it. Now we can tie Memento directly to Tenet, but you're going to have can, to look at my Polaroids and we're going to have to look at the uh, tattoos on my chest to really figure out what the heck Tenet means. <laughs> Matthew, what do you have for number five? Eat Joe's. What does that even mean? My number five is actually an example of my existential angst and dread about this particular category, because um, I, I don't set out to uh, upset or irritate Steven when he moderates top five. Let me I guess. Really did you put don't. did you put mystery men as your number five because it has the word mystery in the title? <laughs> That's funny. I should have done that. No. Um, but this is interesting because I, I spoke uh, before the show, but you have a very specific love of time travel movies. Uh -huh. So specific that you will take movies that have time travel elements and you will say, this is not a time travel movie. And one of the movies that you have said is not a time travel movie is my number five, even though Wait, it's this listed is, this as is mystery. This is mystery movies, not time travel movies. Stay with me. My number five mystery movie is technically a slasher movie, technically a comedy, but oh. there is a central mystery to it. And the mystery is who is killing our protagonist over and over and over. And that movie is happy death day, uh, which is a movie that I adore. Uh, it is just this weird, it, it feels like a weird little indie film, even though it's a Bloomhouse horror movie. And the central premise of it all is uh, a girl named Tree, short for Teresa, wakes up one day. It's her birthday, and she dies. And then she wakes up the same day, remembering what just happened, goes through her whole day, and she dies. And she starts cycling through a series of deaths, trying to unravel who it is that's going to kill her. In the hopes that if she figures out who is killing her, that she'll live through to tomorrow. And it's actually a pretty, you know, it's a cool premise. It's one of those elevator pitch things where yeah, what, if like, Groundhog what if, what if Day, Groundhog Day, but with slasher, flick but Friday mentality. the 13th. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the reason why, the really reason why I don't, the reason why I don't call it a time travel movie is because Groundhog Day isn't a time travel movie. There's not a device. And then everyone's pointing out, ah, oh, but there is a device, Steven. You find out that the cupcake is a time travel device. In the second movie. And it's like, no, 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 no. If you have to do backflips and wave your hand and tell people pay no attention to the man behind the court uh, behind the uh, uh, curtain to explain your how a cupcake is your time travel device is not a time travel movie. Sorry, I'll count it as a mystery movie because you are trying to figure yeah. out, you know, who who done it. Um, but it's, it's definitely really, not a time. It's travel really movie. a solidly constructed film. And I feel like the thing that really sells it is the main actress, Jessica Roth. 
who is, you know, she goes through this transformation from she really feels like one of the plastics from Mean Girls at the end or at the beginning of the film. And by the end, she's turned into a really relatable, cool protagonist that you're like, yeah, I like her. I'm with her. And of course, you know, it's the second movie where she jumps out of an airplane onto her ex-boyfriend and her evil best friend who are kissing each other. And I just I love that moment. I actually have it as a GIF on my phone and I use it all the time. But if you ever get a chance to watch Happy Death Day, be aware, first of all, it's not a it's not really a slasher movie. It's not really a, a, a time travel movie. It's not really a lot of things, but I feel like it is solidly a mystery. Well, yeah, and, and Groundhog Day is not a time travel movie either. But as you described sure. it, Matthew, this movie is what if Groundhog Day meets, you know, a slasher. Yeah. What if Groundhog Day on Friday the 13th yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Uh, all right. We have looped back around to our number fours. And one thing that I noticed, well, at least for three of my next four movies, one of the big hooks that you find in these is that two unrelated cases suddenly become related and that mm-hmm. is how the uh, that's how the detective or that is how the hero figures out the crime that has been done in my number four. This is one that I think passed a lot of people by. I don't think it has super great reviews, uh, but I really like the way that uh, what's his name? Shane Black uh, crafts this story of Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe as a pair of. Well, one of them is a detective. Uh, Ryan Gosling is the detective. Russell Crowe is more of an enforcer guy. And uh, they somehow get involved in this crazy missing girl murder also turns into a murdered porn star, which also turns into a uh, conspiracy by the auto industry to cover up the catalytic converter and all the pollution that's going on in the Los Angeles area in the 1970s. It's also a comedy, um, as many Shane Black movies tend to be. Uh, You know, you look at uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and you look at uh, didn't he do one of the. uh, he did Iron Man three, I think. Yeah. Iron Man three. I think he also did. I want to say he did one of the lethal weapon movies, uh, maybe lethal weapon three. I want to say, um, but they all kind of have these comedic elements on top of, you know, an action kind of thriller kind of thing. But this one, it's really well done, especially the girl who plays Ryan Gosling's daughter is fantastic in this. And you just see kind of two bumbling idiots, uh, you know, figure out the whodunit figure out, you know, what the audio industry, auto industry is doing and why they had to kill this person. And then they solve the crime and save the girls in the end. So the nice guys, uh, it's worth checking out. It's, um, again, it didn't receive a lot of high reviews because I think that a lot of people really didn't appreciate what Shane Black was doing, which was basically kiss, kiss, bang, bang again. Uh, but it's still, it's still a fun movie. And so the nice guys is my number four mystery movie. Now, is Russell Crowe playing the son of uh, Sergeant White from L.A. Confidential, where he also played a weird enforcer guy in a police suit? No, in L.A. Confidential, I was going to have on my list, but it was just like, ah, there's so many others that I like a lot more. But no yeah. and no to both of your questions. Uh, Rodrigo, Bummer. what do you have for number four? Uh, my number four is I think there are certain names that immediately get uh get you thinking about mysteries right you hear like the character's name you're like ah this must be a mystery something like poirot or something like miss marple um Mm -hmm. so of course my number four is detective pikachu (laughs) yeah it's a straight up mystery movie detective pikachu is a very straightforward mystery movie you have to find out what happened to justice uh, smith's dad Uh, you have to find out why we have uh, this 
talking Pikachu, and of course, it as it happens, it all gets embroiled into a dastardly conspiracy to let me check, turn everybody into Pokemon. So right. you can't. Uh, spoiler alert! It has the the bad guy turns out to be Gorilla Grodd, I guess. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, it's uh, Detective Pikachu is very cute and a very straightforward detective movie, and mm-hmm. it takes place in the world of Pokemon. So if you like Pokemon, uh, at least you're going to have something to look at constantly because there's constantly Pokemon in the frame. Yeah, everywhere. Right? So no, and it's a times. it's actually it's a surprisingly good movie too, right? Yeah, a lot of people I think just dismissed it, and it turns out to be a really fun movie. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, Matthew, what do you have for your number four? My number four is a straight up mystery. Top to bottom, it is a mystery. And it has at its center one of the actors that you associate with great acting uh, in a period from about 1977 to about 1982. It starts with our main character, who is an investigative reporter, being paid to murder a man who claims that he has a disease but doesn't. And that is when Erwin M. Fletcher starts looking into the case of Boyd Aviation. My number four, Fletch, starring that uh, wonderful, mysterious actor, Chevy Chase, uh, from, I think, 1985 or so. It would have been Somewhere right after. Yeah, it would have been right after the peak of It was of after Chevy's Ghostbusters, and it was after um, Spies Like Us. Yeah. yeah, but it's a really good movie, and it has, it has the things that I love in a movie, in that, one, it's very quotable, Mm-hmm. Two, when you have an over-the-top actor like, you know, Chevy Chase or likewise John Belushi, or if you get, you know, somebody who really does do that larger-than-life scenery-chewing thing, like Charlotte Ray, you got to let him go. And Fletch is a movie that just lets Chevy go nuts. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But all of it really kind of comes together because when he falls apart, it feels like it's because Erwin M. Fletcher is a yutz. And in universe, when, you know, Chevy's shtick is stupid, it's because Erwin M. Fletcher is kind of stupid, but he pulls it all together. He works it all out. You know, it has similar elements in a lot of ways to the big Lebowski where, you know, he's not necessarily the best detective in the world, but things come together for him. And there's a, there's a human aspect and a humorous aspect to it. And of course it's got a, a young George went in it which I think is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, George went playing a drug dealer on the beach, no less. But if you get a chance to watch it, just watch it for the scene where the, the, uh, where the walking tall guy pulls a gun on Chevy chase and Chevy chase is like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm just going to kill this story. Don't shoot me in the face. Everything you say is fine. Just let me go. And it's such it's such a wonderful kind of a devolution of what I expect from a mystery film. <laughs> it's like, Oh yeah, uh, I'm going to fight this to the end. Oh wait, there's a gun. Nope. Sorry. Bye. Yeah. I love that moment. And if you, if you've never seen Fletch, I do recommend it. Even if you're allergic to Chevy, cause it's a good flick. Yeah. There are some moments. There's some, there's a blackface moment in the movie that doesn't hold up mm-hmm. after all these years. Yeah. Although you can see why they put it in there. But at this, you know, because it's a fantasy element, but it's also right. Chevy Chase in blackface, which will probably Creepy. put a bunch of people off. And there's also a couple of moments of, um, well, I, I enjoy the movie. Uh, what I would suggest, Matthew, if you haven't, uh, mm-hmm. I would suggest reading the Fletch novels. There's a whole series of these. I have made my way through about 10 of the 20 Fletch uh, books. And they're all really good. And it, and it is clear that th- you can see if you read the first Fletch 
book, you can see kind of where they lifted things and plop them into yeah. the movie and where the adaptation is. Uh, but mm -hmm. at, at the same time, I think in this, you find, you see somebody who is really a smart person. Who's really a good investigative reporter who just doesn't care. That's, that's his whole thing is he <laughs> just doesn't care. Whereas in the movie, it makes him come off as he's kind of an idiot, but it's yeah. just like, no, he's really intelligent. He's really smart. He knows how to be a really great investigative journalist. He just doesn't care about the system at all. And considering that the books were written in the, in the, in the seventies and the movie didn't come mm. out until the eighties, there's that disconnect between yeah. you know, the man, you know, uh, fighting against the man and those kind of things. But yeah, Fletch is a, is a really, really uh, good, good movie. Yep. All right. Uh, my number three is inherent vice. It is one that I've talked about before. It mm. is a very different kind of detective movie in that, uh, Joaquin Phil, uh, Philip, uh, Phoenix plays, uh, Doc Sportello who one night an ex-girlfriend shows up and says, Hey, this guy, this rich guy that I've been sleeping with has kind of disappeared. And I think they're after me and she disappears. And so Sportello is trying to find out what happened to her. But in the process, he under uncovers this giant conspiracy that's going on. And it's really a good movie that's well done. And it's done in the haze of the, uh, late sixties, early seventies drug craze in Los Angeles, or maybe it's San Francisco. No, it's Los Angeles. And, um, it's just really, it's really good. And, and once you watch it, I think you have to watch it a couple of times before you start to see a lot of things, uh, play out. Uh, at one point there's a character that, uh, I realized, Oh wait, this character is all inside Sportello's mind. And then that brings into the question of, well, how much of this story is unreliable because we know that the, the narrator is unreliable in this moment that he has uh, late in the film, you have to question, did those things actually happen? So this is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It came out in 2014. It is one that I I've talked before that I have to be very careful about because if I'm scrolling through the list of movies on my Apple device and I see inherent vice and I'm just kind of bored, I'll probably end up watching this movie just because <laughs> it's like, Oh, you know, this is such a funny movie. It's got, um, uh, Martin short is as a drug addicted dental. What is it? Orthodontist. And he just, he just steals the show when he is in it. Uh, of course, every character steals the show when they're in it, including Josh Brolin, who plays a hardcore, uh, detective for the Los Angeles police department who has wishes and ambitions to also be an actor and, um, get a lot of that, get a lot of that, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood money in his pocket as well as trying to serve the law. So it's, it's really interesting. It, it kind of plays a little bit on the hippie culture and, you know, the, the dirty hippie kind of, uh, meme that goes on because Sportello is a dirty hippie that, you know, does a lot of drugs. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a good movie. The mystery is, is there. And as it starts to play out and as it starts to become uncovered, um, it's worth watching again and again and again, unlike, as you said earlier, Rodrigo, with a memento, once you know the the hook and you see what happens, then you kind of doesn't make the rest of the movie fun. But I think in Inherent Vice, you watch it once and you're like, OK, here are the things. Let me watch it again to start pulling out these little pieces that are here and there. And pretty sure. soon the story becomes super complex and super deep. Um, I'm about ready to start the the book, this the the book that the film is based on um, from uh, Thomas Pinchon. And I started it a long time ago, but I just never got into it. So I'm going to pick, pick it back up and uh, try it again, knowing what I know from the movie and know, knowing what I know about Pinchon and see if, if I enjoy that a lot more. But uh, yeah, Inherent Vice 
is a really good movie, and it lands at my number three. Rodrigo, what do you have for number three? Uh, my number three is a movie that I'm. It came out in 2018, and I'm very surprised that like no one cared. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't know that it did very well. Um, I caught it once on cable and i was like what is this movie i'd literally never heard of it uh and um kind of going off of a uh both an unreliable narrator as steven says and uh happy death day kind of slasher mystery uh like matthew uh put up i would submit you might be the killer Mm. Mm. um 2018 has Allison Hannigan and the protagonist Fran Kranz. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what else he's been on, but the idea is that um, there's a slasher that's killing, uh, you know, some teenage, like the, the camp counselors are there, like before the camp opens, having fun and, you know, getting frisky with each other and then a a slasher shows up and starts killing them. Um, So uh, the protagonist, um, Sam calls up his friend who is a slasher movie, um, like super duper fangirl, right? And that's Alison Hannigan. And so they start talking and then as it progresses, it kind of seems more and more like actually the killer is Sam. it's it's interesting it's a it's it's a funny movie it's a little bit of a scary movie but it's interesting because the mystery then becomes how does he not know that right how doesn't how does like first off who's the killer then it's like oh it's sam well how does he not realize that he's the killer and so um the movie kind of lays out a new mystery every time it solves one until you get to the very end um so it i found it very enjoyable um, again, I'm surprised that like I've never heard anybody talk about this movie, uh, even to to make fun of it or to say that it's bad. It's just completely under the radar as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's my number three. You might be the killer. All right. Very good. I have not heard of that movie. And yeah, uh, yeah it's really it is kind of a surprising that, you know, it's got some some named actors in there, but it just seemed to have gone nowhere. Interesting. Uh, Matthew, what is your, what are we on three? What is your number three? My number three, uh, is something that you and I have talked about actually in the past and you have immediately, you, you've said it's terrible and bad and you hate it and it's awful. But for me, I feel like the classical moments of it really work. I mean, bringing in unexpected references, essentially what it breaks down to is sort of, uh, a hippy dippy remake of the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, told through a lens of country music and betrayal and stabbing and talking dogs. And of course, I'm talking about the new Scooby-Doo movies, uh, season one, episode 12, The Phantom of the Country Music Hall. Uh, This is one of my favorite childhood movies. It's actually, and it is a movie because it clearly says in the title, the new Scooby-Doo movies. Uh, But The Phantom of the Country Music Hall features one of my heroes, one of my idols, one of the people who I look up to in the world, and that's the Alabama madman, Jerry Reed. And Jerry Reed, of course, is supposed to be singing at a country music hall, but when Mystery Inc. arrives, they find that Jerry is missing. They can't find him. They can only hear him singing through the fence, and they have to figure out 
who's trying to keep Jerry Reed from singing. And it's remarkably complex, you know, for a Hanna-Barbera cartoon for 1972. But it also features Jerry Reed in it. And Jerry Reed, you know, pre-Smokey and the Bandit, but post-Amos Moses, is one of those characters who no matter what he's saying or doing, it's entertaining. I mean, Jerry Reed could literally read you the menu from an IHOP, but it would probably more likely be a Waffle House. And it would be entertaining. And so... When you figure out what's going on and when it all comes together and when Jerry and Scooby-Doo team up to bring down the evil villain with, you know, probably a trap involving some ropes and some stuff that they had in the mystery machine. And a giant sand. It's satisfying. Yeah. It's satisfying. Uh, a xylophone at play. It comes into play yeah. as well. It's also really satisfying it's when they try to uh, rip off Jerry Reed's uh, face to reveal the, the killer underneath. <laughs> and then they realize, holy crap. Ball! And they realize, holy crap, we just ripped off Jerry Reed's face. It's a real twist <laughs> that nobody sees same, coming. It's from the same show where we saw them team up with Don Knotts and the Three Stooges and the Adams Family and Batman and Sandy Duncan, because Batman and Sandy Duncan. Oh, and don't forget like, Phyllis Diller. And yeah, then years Phyllis years Phyllis. later, Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, there was also a Mama Cass episode in there. Yes, I remember uh, that one too. 72, you said the Adams and Family already? Jones. Yep. Davy Jones. Jones yeah. Davies is not the best, but Jerry Reed nails it. And he sings a song that 50 years later will still wedge in my brain if I so much as mention it. So I cannot say the name of the song, but be aware that the title of the song is also the entire chorus of the song. And it will stick in your brain. Literally, I had this in my head from about 1980 to about 1985. And it's really why I didn't get into the really good schools. So that's why my number three the new Scooby-Doo movies, because it has movie in the title, colon, Phantom of the Country Music Hall. All right, there you go. Uh, my number two, oh, this might come as a surprise. This is the twist that no one the expects twist. in the mystery. This is the, this is the one where you're like, aha, the killer has been revealed, and it is Matthew. And they're like, no, sorry, it's not Matthew. And everyone's like, what? But all the clues point to Matthew. And people are like, nope. Sorry, we're going to go in a whole other direction, which is why many of you may be surprised when I say my number two mystery movie is Chinatown. Because oh. I love Chinatown. I love me some J.J. Giddis. I love Jack Nicholson as he plays uh, one of the Jakes that is trying to solve the mystery of uh, what happened to uh, Mr. Mole Ray. And then we die, do a deep dive into the, uh, the, the whole affair with uh, Faye Dunaway, uh, Mrs. Mole Ray and her father played by John Houston. And I mean, there's a, a shocking moment that works perfectly in the 1970s as a shocking moment. But today seems to be kind of like, yeah, there's like a, a porn hub uh, category for that. <laughs> uh, so it's it. not really that shocking. Um, but uh, Chinatown is full of twists. It is full of, again, it's a kind of a complex mystery that I, you know, some people can go, oh, yes, I can follow all the plot points every step of the way. And that's great. But I really think that in order to really understand what's going on in Chinatown, you kind of have to watch it multiple times to find out all the nuance. I would highly recommend. And again, you, you shouldn't have to do a lot of work to enjoy a movie. And you can watch this and just enjoy the movie. Um you know, it's got, uh, uh, what's his name from a uh, big trouble in little China in it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's good. Victor Wong, Kurt Russell. No, not, not, um, uh, is it Victor Wong? No. Who am I thinking of? Um, anyway, who did he play? He played the Butler at the, uh, for the Mrs. Mulray. Um, 
Who did he play in Big Trouble in Little China? He played the the bad guy. That's James Hong. Oh, James Hong. Yeah, yeah. Victor yeah, Wong is awesome. the magician guy. Um, yeah. But the but the thing about uh, Chinatown is, I think the movie becomes more enjoyable the more research you do. So if you go into the water rights issues of what was going on in Los Angeles and how, even though these are fictitious characters in the movie, how the real life people kind of duped uh, northern uh, northern parts of uh, Los Angeles and parts of Orange County out of their water rights and then, you know, stole it to make Los Angeles the city it is. Then suddenly Chinatown has, you know, even deeper meanings and even deeper depths to it than just the surface. Now, the drawback to uh, Chinatown, just like we were talking about uh, Chevy Chase doing uh, blackface, uh, this is a Roman Polanski movie. And so mm-hmm. for those of you who uh, have a deep hate and desire of Roman Polanski, and look, I'm not being a Roman Polanski apologist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't care for Roman Polanski myself, but this is a really, really good film. And if you go in and look at the um, the making of Chinatown and everything that uh, Robert uh, Town and um, Polanski and who was the producer on this, I'm thinking of it off the top of my head. It Evans? is. Yeah, yeah. Bob Evans. And you look at everything that went into the making of that, you start to get a little bit more respect for that. And then also you just have an appreciation of the film. But I understand that Roman Polanski is one of those uh, people that will set people off. And so I totally understand if you're like, I will never watch Chinatown because of Roman Polanski. I totally understand that uh, completely. So my number two is Chinatown, which is that big twist in the mystery, which is why everyone's like, oh, my gosh, now I don't know who the number one mystery movie is. Ah. Who's it going to be? Yeah, but Matthew, I think we need to get to your, or I'm sorry, Rodrigo, we need to get to your number two. Yeah. Uh, my number two is, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that um, in the early 2000s, every movie had to have a twist, and that's because of this movie. Uh, my number two is The Sixth Sense, and mm. I'm, going to, I'm going to try and convince you guys that it is a mystery. It is a mystery. Uh, and it's a mystery. It's uh, when you look when you look at the sixth sense as a mystery. Um, all of the tropes are there. All of the tricks are there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, l- cutting away from things, not letting you see uh, an entire scene the way that it uh, the way that it plays out, and so on. Um, but you don't realize that you have been watching a mystery until the end. You don't know what the question of the sixth sense is until the end. And then it recontextualizes everything as, you know, a lot of mysteries do when you figure out, Oh, it was this person. Well, how did they do it? And then they start telling you, remember that scene that you only saw half of, well, the other half was this, you know, and the, the sixth sense kind of does that to you. Um, but, and it's, very surprising the first time around because you don't realize that you're watching a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it puts you in that mindset, um, it moves like a mystery thriller, even though only perfectly mundane things ever happen. Right. Um, except for the spooky parts, but you know, there are, uh, there's just scenes of like, kids talking and it's like super sinister and there's scenes of like a uh, little baby Haley Joel Osment like walking down the street and you're like there's a question here like all of the cinemat- cinematography is telling me there's a question here but I haven't like nobody's asked it yet 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think definitely the the sixth sense is a, a sort of a surprise mystery because it is a movie with a twist. It doesn't let you know that a twist is coming until the very end, um, and then uh, kind of simultaneously ruined movies for the next few years where like every movie absolutely had to have a twist and also ruined movies for the next few years because people watching movies become desperate to find clues and like things all over them mm-hmm. even if they don't matter or yeah. even if they are actually ruining the it was Agatha the experience for themselves yeah like yeah, the sixth sense the is like this you know 1999 man the year that changed movies right some movies by being good, I think The Sixth Sense is a very good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like, change movies for the worst, both movie culture and movies themselves. And, and movie fandom, too, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I meant with the culture. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, when, did, when you watched it for the first time, did you know the twist, right, or go? I already knew the twist because uh. somebody had spoiled it for me. Oh, boo. Um, but that did not prevent me from enjoying it. Yeah. Um, I was, again, going in, God, that came out when I was in high school. When I watched it, I was very entertained the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like all of the actors in that movie are actually very good, including Bruce Willis back when he gave a crap about acting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, before they just like wheeled him into a project for like, a one day shoot and then wheel them back out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Bruce Willis is acting his bald little heart out in this movie. And it's, it's very good. Yeah. I, I can't remember if we watched it the first weekend it came out or the second weekend it came out. We knew there was a, there was a surprise that was going to shock everybody, but we didn't mm-hmm. know going in, but mm-hmm. at the dinner scene where, um, Bruce Willis goes to meet his wife, I was like, Oh, this is what's going on. And then I leaned over to the person I was with and I was like, here's here's here. I bet you this is what's going on. And that wasn't, I don't even think halfway through the movie yet. Sure. And, sure. and so then it was just like, no, well, probably because that person didn't believe me at first. And then when it turned out to be that, uh, that person was very angry and I was like, I just, you know, it's right there on the screen. If you pay attention, you just got to I mean, put the clues together. I, I, again, this, this movie that was so impactful, I think to, to the, to us culture, um, it, uh, it, that's the impact of it, right? Mm-hmm. The impact is even as you're watching the movie, if you already know there's a mystery, you're working to solve the mystery and you literally ruined it for someone else because, because you had to make sure that there was a witness yep. who knew that you had gotten it, yep. right? If you say afterwards that you had it all figured out, no one's going to believe you. You got to tell somebody now. Yep, it's exactly. like me being like, like going to my wife and be like, this is what I think is going on in Loki. And she's like, I'm not watching that. And I'm like, I know you're the only person I can tell. So that I don't ruin <laughs> it for anybody. And so that, you know, later on, somebody like there will be a mark when I die on my gravestone. You can write. He totally figured out what was going on in Loki before episode four. Yeah. So for those of you that are listening to this as it comes out, I realize that the final episode of Loki just aired the day before we're recording this episode the day before the new episode of Loki arrives. So yeah, I know there what it is, but I'm not you coming. go. I, I feel, well, let's just not get into it. We'll, we'll do it. In, we'll do it in a, in a, in a pre-show kind of discussion. Sure. Uh, I don't care about being spoiled because, uh, that can sometimes be part of the fun. Anyway, Matthew, sure. what do you have for your number two? My number two is an important mystery film, because I feel like a lot of times 
you overlook how important the central character is in a mystery. Because a mystery, a lot of times, you know, is like a romance. There's there's kind of a formula. And so you want something specific. Hercule Perrault used to say he had these little gray cells in his big egg-shaped head. Or, you know, you have elementary Watson, which, of course, he never said. Then, of course, you have the incredibly racist number one son uh, with Charlie Chan. But I feel like the quote that really sets it off for me is, not sure I agree with you 100% there on your police work, Lou. Because Fargo, my number two, is a wonderful movie. It's an incredibly cool movie. And I feel like you could, they, they plucked this plot straight out of something with Humphrey Bogart and then said, how can we make this weird? And just did everything weird to it. Your main character is, you know, a, a pregnant mother from Minnesota. You, the actual murderer, the person doing all of this, is, is just kind of this goober. I'm not going to tell you who he is, <clears throat> the shoveler. But as you go through this movie, every time you should have a standard kind of, oh, yeah, this is that movie. This is that moment that you get in every film. It's there, but it's different. They, they put the twist on it. And I feel like I'm not, I'm not the biggest Coen Brothers guy. There are times where I can take or leave a Coen Brothers movie. You know, Barton mm. Fink didn't really do anything for me. I like some of them. I don't love any of them except for Fargo, simply because of those quiet moments as they're going along and they're doing the thing, and Marge and her husband are sitting and watching Wheel of Fortune and, you know, eating on TV trays and talking about the murders. And it's just, you know, this this really nice kind of, down-home weird mystery. And, of course, if you've ever been to Minnesota or lived with someone from Minnesota, as I have, you'll know that that accent is legit. It is real. They are not exaggerating a whit. That is how you get... It's scary. And if if you want to have fun, watch this movie with Carl. Because by the end of the film, Carl will totally be talking like that, eh? (laughs) And I always go Canadian. I go a little too high with the Minnesota. Too far north. Yeah, but if you ever talk to Carl's mother, it's wonderful. She talks like Marge, son of a Gunderson, uh, which isn't really anything that'll make you enjoy Fargo more, but it certainly won't make you enjoy it less. And I think you should go watch it because it's a good movie and it's my number two. All right. We yeah. have uh, gathered Fargo, everyone. Fargo, go a, ahead. The, a, the rare example of like a Columbo type mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know who the criminal is. You actually kind of follow both of them yep. as they're kind of sorting things out. And as she's like basically circling around to catch him. Yep. We know from the beginning what's going on. And the fascination is watching her unravel it yep. and seeing how very smart she is. Yeah. So what we, I've gathered everyone here in the room. I've gathered all the suspects. We thought it was going to be Chinatown, but it turned out not to be Chinatown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know people are looking over in the corner and going, huh, I wonder if it's the Maltese Falcon. No, Maltese Falcon isn't even on this list. I mean, <sighs> Rear Window, Rear Window is a is a runner-up movie for me. I mean, that's a very good mystery of who did it and how can we prove that that Raymond Chandler actually killed uh, uh, his wife. You might say, oh, well, if it's not uh, the uh, the big uh, the uh, the Maltese Falcon, maybe Stephen has put the big sleep on here. I would say yes, but the big sleep in its theatrical release in my opinion, is not nearly as good as the quote-unquote director's cut that uh, was shipping around the the U.S. Um, military 
in the in the 40s and 50s and until they finally put it together in the 1990s and released it uh, only because in Big Sleep, they cut out all of the threads that said that, oh, the young girl was actually involved in like pornography in a in a pornography ring and all these drugs that were being used. But because of the Hays Code, they had to cut all that stuff out. And to me, it doesn't make the big sleep as interesting a movie, even though people are all um, all up on the uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, uh, Lauren Bacall uh, oh. love stuff that's going on. So, uh, yeah, it, it could probably be that. But gosh, I got to ask you, Robert Mitchum, what were you doing on the night that we recorded this show? Were you indeed my number one in Farewell, My Lovely? <gasps> Farewell, My Lovely is, I didn't uh, discover this until maybe it's less than a decade ago. I know that. But I was in the mood for, okay, let's look at some other, uh, you know, Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett uh, kind of mysteries. But I was looking for something a little bit more hard-edged. It, I probably discovered it after I discovered the director's cut of The Big Sleep. Um, and Farewell, My Lovely is came out in the 1970s. It is a is it a it's a it's a remake of an, uh, a version of the film that was done in the 1940s, which I started watching that the other day and turned it off quickly because it was bad, even though a lot of oh, people no. hail it as as a really good movie. But in this, this is another one of those. Go look for the missing girl. Oh, it turns into a murder. Oh, it turns into a, you know, like a double homicide. But because you got Robert Mitchum in it. Uh, playing uh, Philip Marlowe and the fact that in the seventies, uh, you know, the, the, the rating system uh, was totally radicalized and changed, man, there is big drug use in here. There's nudity in here. There's Sylvester Stallone in here. Uh, Farewell. My lovely is just a really good uh, detective movie that doesn't pull any punches. Chinatown, they get away with a lot. Um, but I, but I think as I mentioned before, the, the Polanski, angle probably lowers it for me. Uh, but the fact that, you know, you can have Robert Mitchum, Mitchum getting shot up with goofballs by this, um, uh, madam of a house, a prostitution house, and has to go through like 20 minutes of the movie in a drug fueled haze. And then, uh, finally, you know, figures out what's going on at the end. And then somebody else dies makes for a really good story. Now, the biggest drawback of farewell, my lovely, I think is the cinematography because it feels like cheap cinematography and it feels like movie of the week cinematography, which yeah. I think they could have done a lot more with it, but farewell. My lovely is a great film. And I think when it comes to mysteries and following the clues and figuring out who done it and why this is my number one mystery movie. And uh, yeah, when I look at all of the other suspects on my list, I, I still, nothing can compete with, with that movie for me. So there you go. Robert Mitchum, you done it in Farewell, My Lovely. Not even, not even the uh, Philip Marlowe movie with um, James Garner uh, made my list. Uh, wow, which is uh, yeah, which is a surprise. But what do you have it for is. your number two, yeah. Rodrigo? My number two. Uh, so, if you look at my list, it's very obvious that straight up, you know, noir detective pair might not be my jam right mm -hmm. it's just you know like detective pikachu is in there uh you might be the killer uh but my number one is a much more straightforward detective tale it features a private investigator whose partner was recently killed a femme fatale 
and a mystery that continues to get deeper and deeper the more he gets into it. Mm. I'm talking, of course, about the classic Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) I knew it. That's a a really good one. It is. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a very, it's like, quote unquote, a straightforward mystery. What complicates everything is that you have to, as you're solving the mystery, they also have to explain to you the rules of Toontown, right? Right. And how you can kill a tune and how you can, um, how humans can or can't be harmed by them. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's being a detective in a fantasy setting. Um, although uh, Eddie Valiant, uh, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. doesn't have uh, really doesn't have too many supernatural abilities the way that the Toons do, but he gets help from Toons, and that kind of gives him uh, an ability to do things. And by learning the rules of how the Toons work, he's often able to get himself out of jams. First off, he's able to track down Roger Rabbit, and second, he's able to like get himself out of some like sticky situations. Um, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I think, continues to be like one of the best movies ever made. It is um, ju- not only is it a, 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 a special effects triumph that holds up to this day, mm-hmm. um, but also it's a fun movie. It's an interesting story. Uh, it does have some stuff that I think nowadays, uh, well, that, you know, again, as many uh Many uh, an opening slate say it wasn't okay then and it's not okay now. Right. Um, but uh, it's, if I recall, it's pretty minor. Yeah, um, it, it's so, it's it's pretty tame in that sense. Yeah, the other, you know, all, the, all things considered, you know, there's like a there's like a bullet that has a uh, like a, a an Indian headdress and it mm-hmm. probably talks in a terrible like quote no, he, unquote, he does like Native American Indian, accent. Yeah, you he know, does the like, Indian whoop. Uh, yep. So you know, there's there's little things like that. If that makes you uncomfortable, of course, you know, it's not a big deal. But also, uh, the movie has a absolutely, like, absolutely wild um, piano duet duet Mm -hmm. between Donald Duck and Daffy Duck. Yeah, the dueling. Make fun of each other's speech impediments. Yeah. The the dueling Uh, dueling piano sequence is one of the best in that film. But the other amazing thing about this is that you got... Warner Brothers and Disney to agree to share yeah, to play ball. their their characters between. Uh, I, I just this movie. I, I have to. I, I I've always wondered what sort of absolute horrifying blackmail had to happen there, because <laughs> this is this is not a kids movie. Like this is a murder mystery. Like the tunes are not really like the, the tunes are played at their most. Like I don't know. Uh, like picaresque mm-hmm. or um or malevolent right there's mm-hmm. they're like little these are their 1940s ships. these are their yeah. 1940s versions which are very ribald and, and very risque yeah absolutely uh, yeah. so i'm i'm surprised that like what 85 disney and um, but you got to remember 85 disney was also the the time period where they are kind of desperate for yeah. wins uh you got to remember warner brothers as far as their Looney Tune collections are running Saturday morning cartoons and losing audiences because people are like, are cartoons really too violent for kids? So it's kind of one of those moments where nobody had anything to lose. Disney hadn't released The Little Mermaid yet. Uh, Warner Brothers hadn't released Batman yet. So these guys had literally nothing to lose and everything to gain. And if you want to know and, what kind and of... And because of that, 
it it gave uh what is a Zemeckis joint yeah. mm-hmm. um it gave that creative team the ability to do kind of whatever they wanted with them which if you look at something like here's a Simpsons Star Wars parody in the age of Disney owning both Fox and Disney it feels saccharine yeah, right yeah. it feels yeah. weak like very clearly commanded by the overlords like Roger Rabbit is edgy Robert Ra- uh, uh, Roger Rabbit is subversive like, pushing what these characters like and where these characters exist and and putting them in situations that uh that that really like you said really put them back into where they were in the 40s mm-hmm. um but these are the the 80s versions of those characters right you look at Bugs Bunny and it's his current no, no, no. Uh, it was his or... it was his forties. It was his forties version of the character. Oh, oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's and that's the other thing you were saying. I wonder what kind of blackmail. There was still a lot of very tough negotiations on what yeah. characters could have big speaking lines and which ones could do what and making sure that, you know, every studio had equal representation. And that's why yeah. in the scene where Eddie Valiant is falling from the skyscraper, they had to make sure that Bugs Bunny and uh Mickey Mouse and were Mickey on Mouse the were screen there. at the same time. And have the, the same exact same of, of speaking lines in, in yep. that scene, just yep. to make sure that everyone was like, well, this is my big one and this is your big one. And, and here we go. So yeah, it's really good. Now, very rarely do, I mean, you're always going to find situations where the movie is better than the book. And sometimes you're like, oh no, the book was better than the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a perfect example of the movie was so much better than the book. And if you ever get a chance to read Who Censored Roger Rabbit, it's a totally different book. Uh, It's more along the lines of, you know, the tunes are part of the newspaper syndicate instead of the the movie studios. And, you know, the the big whodunit has to do with a missing lamp as opposed to, you know, uh, a missing contract that's going to give Toontown their their freedoms. Right. The will. Yeah. And it's it's totally different. It's a totally different uh, mystery. I'm not saying it's a great book. I reread it again recently. It's not a great book, but it's enjoyable. And you can see where they picked little pieces to make who framed Roger rabbit. Uh, but, um, the movie is yeah, so I, much better than, than, I've, uh, a friend of mine recently watched the happy time murders. Yes. Another one that and, is much better than it, than it has any right to be. And, and he said, he's like, this movie was just marketed terribly. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me that it's actually really funny. So I've been meaning to get to it. Yeah. Um, but I haven't gotten around. Yeah, to no, it. I ended up watching it a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I guess. And then I was just like, Matthew, this movie is much better than they made it out to be. I thought this yeah. was going to be the dumbest of all dumb things. And it's a really solid movie and it's really funny. So anyway, uh, Matthew, we are not forgetting you. Uh, one well, more thing. Uh, Matthew, why don't you share your number one, please? I find it interesting that two of your movies, one of yours and one of Rodrigo's have the same plot. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so my number one is an important film for me because it brings together some very, very talented, classic actors, people that I know, you know, and it, people that I look at and I go, I have no idea what your name is, but Doc Brown and Lenny and, uh, you know, uh, Professor Frankenfurter and Lily von Stupp all come together in this small house. But what you must remember is that communism is a red herring. 1985, once again, showing my age, Clue. And this is a movie that always fascinated me when I was younger, because when it came out, the marketing was there were three endings. 
And each ending would play separately in different theaters. And you, as a viewer, were challenged to try and figure out which ending was correct. Who, you know, done it? Who did what? You know, was it uh, Miss Scarlet in the bedroom with a candlestick? Or was it uh, Professor Plum in the refrigerator with a bag of hammers? You don't know unless you've seen it. But if you've only ever seen it uh, on cable or on VHS, you've probably seen a version where all three endings Mm -hmm. ran. And that's the thing that I really love because as this movie unfolds, it really is a, it's a movie that I like to think of as the revenge of the second bananas, because everybody in it feels like somebody that, you know, as the, you know, the sidekick of someone else from something else. But it also has this weird clockwork plot that kind of crosses around and things happen. And, it's wonderfully uh, literate in the way that it puts everything together, but it also borrows from, you know, other movies and mysteries and things of, you know, the fifties and sixties and the forties the and going back all the way to the dawn of movies. First movie was made in 1864 by a guy named Eddie. Uh, but that's actually true. And if you have seen clue and I believe in France, it's called Cluedo. But if you have seen Clue, you know that this is also a group of actors who are known for their ability to improv and ad-lib things. And so I watched this movie just wondering how much of the script was actually scripted, because you know they had to have an ending, and how much of the in-betweens actually was written out beforehand, and whether it was just a situation of put Tim Curry and Madeline Kahn in a room and see what happens. But if you never see another film that you would call a mystery, go see Clue, because you really, really will enjoy it. Plus, got Martin Mole and his mustache is epic. There you go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the top five mystery movies. Which ones did we leave out? Which ones did we fail to to put on our list? What are the ones that what should be? What did we not pick up? Uh, what should be the movies that you would put on a list? Here's what you need to do. You need to head over to the Major Spoilers Discord server. There is a link in the show notes. And then jump down into the Top 5 channel where I'm sure already people have started sharing their Top 5 mystery movies. Uh, I want to follow the clues over to the Discord. Again, just click that link. It's right there in front of you. The clue is in front of you all of the time. <laughs> Right. And then I want to I want to see how everyone else uh, ranks their favorite mystery movies, as does everyone else. Why? Because everyone loves a list. This podcast is copyright 2021 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. 